You're listening to Their Auto Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. <laughs> so, uh, welcome everybody. Today we have a special guest. We have Dr. Jeffrey Wishart, who is uh, is an expert in automated vehicles. I recently wrote a book called Fundamentals of Connected and Automated Vehicles for SAE International. He is at the Arizona Commerce Authority and the Science Foundation of Arizona. Uh, that is a very short description of your background. <laughs> is that accurate? It is. Thank you, Anthony. You got the name right. Most people don't get it right on the first go. So uh, impressive. Some of this stuff is things that, you know, auto manufacturers have been really trying to develop for, you know, 70 years, even we've seen some efforts by the industry to do so. And, you know, when you look at that, how long we've been trying to do it, and then you have, you know, the DARPA challenge and some of those other things mingled in, and yet we're still seeming to really trying to get our hands around it you know it kind of it 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 sheds some light on you know why many people have been skeptical of the continued pronouncements from some of the industry players that you know it's going to be here next year it's going to be here in five years you can't really say that (laughs) well you know when i started graduate school people were talking about fusion energy as the energy of the future and now it seems that people are saying that fusion energy is the energy of the future, and it always will be. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, it seems to be a scenario that also is applying to the safe self-driving vehicles. There are a few like that. I mean, people talk about hydrogen in the same way. Um, I've got differing thoughts on all of that. But I mean, I think that around 2015, 2016, we really started to, uh, on the Gartner hype cycle, get to that that peak of uh, excitement. And I think we might be in the trough of disillusionment at this point. We've had a lot of bankruptcies in the industry. We've had a lot of... Uh, claims or or predictions that haven't come true we all, by 2020 a lot of people thought this was all going to be very common on public roads uh, clearly not the case uh so i think that there are some things that need to be changed in order to uh, get us to where that where we see these vehicles kind of all over the place and in, in all sorts of different use cases uh but you know i think that the progress is being made, but certainly not at the pace that we thought just a few short years ago. Yeah. So going through your book, you kind of cover the the history of autonomous vehicles and different approaches people have taken. And you've talked about some things in there that we've mentioned a lot on the show that I think, hey, this is a great idea. Things like V2X. Uh, and there was something specifically that I just mentioned before you, you joined us. We were talking and it was uh it was it wasn't adaptive cruise control it was uh, cooperative cruise cooperative control. Cu- cruise control which to me just sounds amazing because i always use kind of adaptive cruise control and i get mad when the people behind me don't <laughs> yeah connectivity is is the missing piece i think with, with automation uh we really need connectivity to uh, make automation work well. I think that if if we could be talking to each other in our cars, to the pedestrians and the cyclists on the road, to the infrastructure, there are all sorts of advantages that, that would come with that. The problem is 
I think you guys have talked about this on your show. The FCC uh, decided a few years ago to cut half the spectrum, um, but it was really a lot of people were, were not happy with that decision. But it was a use it or lose it situation, and people weren't using it. And so for 20 years, we've been talking about cars that talk to each other and, and the infrastructure, and very little was done beyond pilot projects. There are lots of pilot projects all over the place. There's still pilot projects all over the place, but we don't have any real deployment when it comes to the OEMs. And so the FCC said, well, I mean, we're going to, we need this spectrum for our Wi-Fi. Uh, so we're going to allocate it there. And, and, but yeah, as you say, I think there's lots of advantages when it comes to connectivity. If we could, um, if we were speaking to each other on, on the highway and we had cooperative adaptive cruise control, studies have shown that you could reduce your energy consumption, you could improve throughput, uh, safety would be enhanced, all sorts of advantages. Uh, but the the, ch- the the challenges when it comes to connectivity, the cybersecurity challenges, the trusting of data that the OEMs themselves didn't uh, didn't produce. Uh, I think that they so far we just for whatever reason for for all those reasons I guess uh, we just don't have that in our on our roads. But uh, I feel like we kind of we have some connectivity in terms of like if you use Google Maps or something like that. Yeah. It, you know, it says, hey, uh, I'm going to reroute you this way or, hey, uh, there's an obstruction up ahead. And there's never an obstruction. It's always a lie. I never find this obstruction. They've gotten really good with there's a speed trap up ahead. Uh, but so we're kind of having that connectivity happen right now. Yeah. Is- yeah, absolutely. There's it depends on how you define connectivity, right? If you're defining connectivity by uh, vehicle to X, uh, you know, DSRC type uh, technology or CV to X, uh, we don't have that yet, but we certainly have been getting people have been using the car as a hotspot for, for some time now. So, yes, as you say, we all get some sort of information into our cars at this point. Most cars are connected, uh, but not connected in, I guess, in the way that I was saying when it, that would really help us when it comes to throughput, energy efficiency, and right. uh, safety. Well, do you think that's going to happen? Sorry, for, is that where basically someone like Google or Apple is essentially they have enough of these devices and enough cars on the road where they essentially become the de facto standard? I think what's the industry seems to be moving towards uh, CB to X, so using the cellular network. So rather than having uh, what's called roadside units periodically around the country everywhere, I don't. I think that's just too expensive. They're around fifty thousand per unit, and so you think trying to put one of those every few miles or or, or at every intersection, uh, it's just not going to happen. I don't think, right? Unless it comes down uh, quite a bit in cost. But so now using the cellular network to make it happen. I mean, we we have latency issues, um, we have cybersecurity issues that need to be addressed. But I think that's probably more promising. And and certain countries like China is really big on cellular VTX. So I think that's where the industry seems to be heading. And there are some USDOT grants out at the moment. Uh, it's called the V2X Accelerator, and you know, my research group is looking at this. Uh, so it, this is looking they they want uh they do want some rsu uh components but they also are interested in these futuristic or more future forward thinking uh cellular applications well jeff one of the objections we've had to the cv2x is that in comparison with dsrc it's hard to anonymize the information that's going across because of course it's ip based i've Mm -hmm. read recently about 
some technology that would use C2 or C2VX or cellular technology, which is anonymized. And uh, can you give me any enlightenment on that? Do you know anything about that? I'm sorry, before, I you, before I, you jump I, into I that, like can you, uh, oh, can you ahead, yeah, sorry, can you uh, just define a couple of those? We're using a lot of high-level acronyms, and I know <laughs> the two of you are like, let's jump in. Okay, so V2X we've talked about is vehicle to infrastructure, and then you had a bunch of acronyms in there, and I died. All right. Well, okay. IP address is the numerical code that identifies whatever uh, device you're using to connect to the internet. Got it. And um, DSRC was the protocol that was being developed by the government for communication between vehicles and each other and uh, and um, the rest of the world, the rest of the universe, which was called V2X. And that had the characteristics that it was completely anonymous. <clears throat> so it did not have an IP address associated with it. Now, the problem is, or the potential problem is, that if you have all the cars connected through cellular technology, Cellular technology is always associated with the IP address of your vehicle or your phone or whatever. And this is this is how people hack into other people's phones using um, technology that's being promulgated by bad actors around the world. So the question is really, if you're using cellular technology to connect vehicles, doesn't that leave you open to manipulation by people who can hack into your particular phone or vehicle or whatever it is that's connected to the cellular network? Now, what I've read recently is that there is some discussion of using those frequencies and that technology, but not using the IP address or somehow anonymizing or making anonymous the participants in that cellular technology. Does that make sense? Thank you. It, it, yeah, it, it, I, I think, I mean, for, for, I, I am not a cybersecurity expert by any means. And I, I think that it's a absolutely crucial aspect of things that are kind of flies under the radar a little bit. Um, there are, there's a big need for more cybersecurity experts in the automotive industry. I, I was at a, an event recently where they said, not just automotive industry related, but there were 15,000 open positions in Arizona when it related to cybersecurity. So I think that's a big uh, missing piece of this. And, you know, the, the, Cellular providers are working on this, as you say. I mean, we we have some cellular uh, partners in Arizona with our research group, and and that's what something that they talk about. That they they look they need to understand uh, what those issues are, and, and anonymizing is is one of those techniques. I think that they they would be looking at uh, to to ensure that that we aren't uh, that, you know it's if you can't trust the messages coming into you into your vehicle you can't make use of them and that's i think been one of the major reasons as i said before why the oems have not been open to uh the connectivity side of things they they say well, look we're just going to do things ourselves we're going to we we're going to perceive everything that we need to perceive and anything you that comes to us so they, they might be open to certain things like single phase and tommy messages or spat messages getting some information like that but anything that's safety critical um i haven't seen much openness to to it but as you say if, if we can make the the messages robust uh i i think that's something that that would help convince them and, and so one of the things i'm i'd try, like to do and i'm trying to uh, develop a research project around this is 
a trust building V2X uh, project where we provide the perception at, at a location to the automated vehicles and they compare it against the perception that they've done on board the vehicle. And if those things match, that's a way of building the trust. So they can trust both the accuracy and the uh, security of that message. I want to get back to the book <clears throat> that you've recently published. And for our listeners, the title of the book is Fundamentals of Connected and Automated Vehicles <clears throat> by our guests and a lot of other distinguished people. Uh, Jeff, let me ask you, who is the target audience for this book so that actually stems from a course on connected automated vehicles that i teach at arizona state university uh each chapter is kind of a lecture uh that that i has so i had all these lecture notes and i thought well why not write a book about it and then i quickly realized that uh it's a lot of work to write a book and so i brought <laughs> in a, some co-authors and uh so the audience is uh, the first audience was my students, but now the audience is the, I, I tried to write it for maybe uh, to, to reach both the lay audience who's interested in this topic, but also the engineers who, who want a uh, quick and uh, quick way of understanding the basics, the fundamentals of the technology. So each of the chapters talk about a different aspect of the technology and it, you know, each chapter could be a book in and of itself, but it's, it's a, getting you a, a intro fundamentals um, understanding of, of those concepts. Well, I did think it was a great survey of the fundamental concepts, but being an engineer, as we do, the first thing we do is stick a screwdriver into something and twist it to see if we can break it, right? So um, I have a, a couple of detailed questions if I can go ahead and throw them at you. So I'm, I'm looking sure. at, uh, at page 189, and it, and it says, in the case of ADS, which is automatic driving systems, there are no regulations or standards Paren currently, close paren, that dictate how an ADS development and or subsequent VNV process, VNV means verification and validation, must be conducted, which type or amount of testing must be conducted, and what level of performance is required for the ADS. Now, to me, that gets to the heart of the problem that we have with uh, self-driving vehicles or AVs. So where does the industry get its requirements uh, for safety and reliability? And uh, those are, are key parameters that should be included in everybody's design for a self-driving vehicle. Yet there seems to be an awful lot of opacity around that. We, we just can't see what people are doing, and the government hasn't stepped up to that. So what, what's your, what are your thoughts on that, Jeff? Yeah, that's that's great, Fred. You pinpointed exactly the problem. Um, right now, if you're developing an automated vehicle, you have to pass FM, uh, FMVSS, so Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards, just like any other car that's on the road. Uh, if you get into a collision, you have to report that to the to NHTSA under their standing general order. Uh, but that's basically it. The, then it goes state by state. Each state will have different uh regulations when it comes to deployment on their on the public roads but as you as you said there there's no real process that's required of any of these vehicles some of the there are lots there's standards out there and there are lots of them i was at a conference recently where someone showed just iso standards and it was like a hundred of them and so there's a there are lots of standards for which to choose 
but there's no real guidance on, oh, you have to do this one, you could ignore this one. Um, NHTSA in 2020 had their advanced notice of proposed rulemaking where they uh, recommend, they started to recommend um, a th- three pretty major standards in UL 4600, ISO 26262 and ISO 21448, uh, but it didn't get past the ANPRM stage. So yeah, everyone's doing their own thing. Everyone is uh, telling, saying basically you have to trust us. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of criticism, I think fairly against some of these companies who say trust us and they don't want to give us any data to back up their claims. But I guess in their defense, and I'll, I'll, I'll do that for shortly, uh, is that they, there isn't that process for them to go through. They, 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 there's nothing for them. There's no benchmark for them to compare against. And so that's absolutely what's needed. Uh, we, I think we all wish that NHTSA would step in and develop some of these regulations that are required, a, a way for us to have confidence that these vehicles are safe to be on public roads but this hasn't done that uh ntsb has been banging their drum for several years to get NHTSA to do it and, and it hasn't happened yet but, but the NHTSA is just not the faa the aviation industry uh ha- had some some bad years where there are a lot of a lot of accidents a lot of people died but they have cleaned up their act and they really do have a pretty good safety record the 737 max notwithstanding and i think that that's it, a lot of us in the automotive industry kind of look over at, at that that industry the aviation industry and say oh i wish we could get there but this is just not the faa uh people's relationship to their cars is just not the same thing that people have uh, relationship with with, uh, with airplanes, <laughs> so I just think that it, it, it's needed, but it's going to be slow, and it's not going to happen at the pace that uh, that we all want. Well, we actually right. tried to fill some of that gap with our uh, consumer oriented AV Bill of Rights, and I know you've read those. What what was your reaction to those? Yeah, I thought they were great. I, I I think that you know it was a while back. You and I had that that interaction, Fred. I can't remember them specifically anymore, but I I remember thinking, yeah, absolutely, this is something that is uh, could be adopted in some form by NHTSA. And you know, I'm glad that you guys did that. I I'm my research group is doing similar. We I I, I mentioned that there's no benchmark against which to compare these vehicles. My research group is trying to develop that benchmark so that we can if. If society and, and through the, the regulator establishes what that benchmark is, um, my process will allow for that to happen. I mean, we we aren't going to say it has to be this much uh, X safer than than a human driver. But if NHTSA makes that that uh, call, then my our process would would uh, would be usable for that that purpose. And so my plan is to develop the, the research. Tosses over the fence to myself as a, the VNV t- uh, task force chair under SA's on road automated driving committee. And then hopefully that influences the, reg- the regulatory uh, body. So, uh, you know, like you, I, I think that we'd like to see some of these regulations and trying to help NHTSA get there. Right. I, th- I think if we just, if we're just passive and wait for it to happen, it's not going to happen as quickly as if we all work together and put things out there into the into the public domain and say here's something that you could use is the yeah, I really, 
Go ahead, Anthony. Uh, Sorry. I was going to ask, so is, is the industry really just kind of jumping ahead of itself? So, uh, you know, they're jumping right into level four and level five driving. We've seen with, you know, GM Cruise, not ever sure what happened to them. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, well, they're trying to get to that level, which is full autonomy, no steering wheel, no pedals and whatnot. Whereas systems in level two, which is what I think a lot of cars have, is like lane keeping assist and automatic emergency braking. That stuff doesn't work yet. There's no regulations around that. I mean, it, it works, but there's no standards. And sometimes it doesn't work like on my vehicle. Um, but I mean, shouldn't they get all of that working first before saying, Hey, let's fly, like let's crawl first. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting question because I think each of the levels have serious challenges, uh, with them. So for level two, for example, as you mentioned, uh, we've got up to, it, the, the level two is very interesting because it can range from just lane centering and adaptive cruise control all the way up to this car can do everything. I just need to always be supervising it, right? So the right. what's called the the object and event detection and response OEDR is can vary in, in sophistication quite widely, but at the it, regardless of how sophisticated it is, the driver is always responsible for the actions of the vehicle, and so the driver always has to be supervising that system. And we know that humans are not great at supervising automation. So the HMI challenges are quite substantial when it comes to level two. And I don't know, I haven't seen anything that proves that a driver monitoring system can make sure that the driver is constantly engaged in the task and ready to, at a moment's notice, intervene. Let me just decode the one acronym he referred to HMI, which is the human machine interface. Thank you, Fred. Yeah, I, I do speak in acronyms. I, I make that mistake all the time. <laughs> well, we, well, I, I, mean. I share that affliction. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was a, that was adorable watching Fred do that. That was so much fun for me. <laughs> and then we get to level three, where you can your humans no longer supervising actively supervising, but you have to be able to take over if the vehicle runs into trouble for whatever reason. Um, and so then can you be sleeping can you be reading can you be complete you're completely disengaged from the drive dynamic driving task as it's called but you have to within a certain time frame be able to take over so if the vehicle knows it's in trouble or it's in and tell asks you to intervene what does that time frame look like who's who's liable uh, in the transition from the the okay you've been notified as the the fallback driver uh, and now you're about to take over, what is the, where's the liability lie? And is it safe? Can that be done safely where you were completely disengaged from the, from the DD dynamic driving task? And now you're trying to engage and try and get situational awareness such that you can be moving at 65, 70 miles an hour on the road, yet you have to be able to know what's happening around you pretty quickly. Uh, that's very challenging. So another HMI issue there. And then as you were talking about level four, um, we've got these vehicles that are, okay, so the human driver can be completely out of the loop, um, but can these vehicles figure out situations in which for which they haven't been trained? AI is, doesn't extrapolate very well. So uh, what if it hasn't seen it in training, what does it do? Um, and the idea, I, I you you want it to to not uh cause an issue 
even if it hasn't seen that that uh, that situation or scenario in training. But that's challenging. AI is is, is I think there are going to be some advances in AI, but we're not there yet. And so, you know, I, I guess at the very least, you'd want the, the vehicle to pull over into. I know this is Fred, one of Fred's favorite, uh, the, the minimal risk condition. But what does that look like? And, and can they uh, perform that safely is, is still a question too. So um, yeah, I, I, I think that we, without the, the, to get back to Fred's point, without that process and the regulation, it's hard for us to know where uh, what the safety impacts of, of these vehicles are. I mean, I think that there's there's some white papers that have come out from some of the automated vehicle companies, but it doesn't really uh, show enough to for someone like me or, or the general public to say, yeah, I think that's sufficient. That they've they've shown that they're safe enough to be on public roads. Uh, you know, there's nothing that we can't have any confidence. I think in, in those claims yet. Um, you know, and, and I think that's a situation that's not ideal for, for anybody. Let me, let me just jump in. The level three for our listeners is a self-driving car that is designed for a human to take over in an emergency, whereas a level four car is a self-driving car, which is designed uh, such that a human does not have to take over in an emergency. The car will take care of itself. So that's the key distinction between level three and level four. And Jeffrey mentioned a key word, which is liability, which I saw Michael perk up over there. So, Michael, you want to talk about the liability consequences of these uh, levels? Well, I mean, I, I was actually—I may have been perking up over level three and thinking about, you know, we see crashes all the time where there is—they're almost instantaneous even human drivers aren't aren't able to respond to them and in a level three vehicle i think those you know I, we looked at the one i believe a few months ago where the um the truck cuts off a some kind of boxy kia and it you know there's literally no time for the driver to rack and the kia flies in the air rolls luckily they weren't injured i don't believe but it was a kind of a, a a stark reminder that these things happen in milliseconds and i don't foresee that there could ever be a way to design a system that's going to allow a human driver to take over fast enough to avoid those but at the same time you know even if you know humans can't really avoid those crashes now anyway but there you know there has to be some you know, within those that period of seconds, you know, there has to be some way to avoid these crashes that are going to happen fast and that we are pretty sure humans aren't going to be able to disengage from a movie or a cat nap in order to address them in time. So I, I, it, yeah. it, it suggests that, you know, level three is never going to be perfect at, at, at predicting and warning drivers and avoiding those types of collisions. And level three is really challenging because be the the AV developer. It's I mean I guess the OEM has to decide. Be very explicit about what you can be doing, what you can't be doing. If you are not engaged in the, in the dr dynamic driving task, you you're liable to potentially fall asleep, right? But is that allowed? Can you be eating? Can you have something in your lap? Can you be looking behind you? I mean, it's so there is one 
automaker that's supposed to be coming out with a level three system in the US. And uh, it, they have not been explicit about either what the driver can do or the liability in that transition period or what that transition period even looks like. So yeah, I, I for a while, I thought, no, there's no way anyone's going to build a level three vehicle, uh, but I, I may be proven wrong shortly. So I think that it's you know, level three is to me potentially the most challenging of of the levels. Yeah, it was surprising. I think we're seeing was, was Mercedes has a license to uh, try out level three and Nevada going That's slower than thirty five miles per hour. And yeah. we talked about liability because Mercedes made this kind of blanket claim saying, "Hey." We'll cover all of your liability if something happens. And then Michael, the lawyer, is like, that's never going to happen. <laughs> There's yeah, no they, way. They, yeah, the, the, the press arm is different, perhaps, right. than what the engineers were thinking, right? So that, that there's a, that's always a challenge in a big company. But it almost sounded like what you're talking about, that, that level two is really hard as well. That level four might be potentially easier. Whereas I think is like there's a lot of stuff missing from level four. Why not just, you know, put all these level two systems in there? Don't make claims that they'll drive your car like some company does and and that they do everything for you. Instead, every time there's human interaction and overriding of the system, hey, the system, you can just learn that's new data points that you can then feed into your level four system. Like, why did this person yeah, hit I mean, the brake here? You know, I, I actually think that, you know, I think that that's certainly potentially true i think that even better might be so we've we've got what's called active safety features so yeah uh, you mentioned a couple of them, matthew but those are actually so if they're intermittent th that's considered active safety so the lane keep assist is intermittent just if you start to drift and right. hit the, the lane so the the lane marker it'll send you back towards the center so lane centering is is uh, sustained operation. So that's automation. But these active safety features like automatic emergency braking, fork collision warning, blind spot warning, these things that are monitoring the human driver, those have proven safety impacts. So uh, there was a study a few years ago that showed that fork collision warning and automatic emergency braking reduced front to rear collisions by 50%. And so a lot of these active safety features, uh, we like we've seen that the rear cameras have, have proven uh, reductions in collisions, things as, as you're reversing your vehicle. Some of these technologies we know are safe. Now, uh, the Euro or the, the USDOT has what's called the New Car Assessment Program, NCAP, and they test a few of these active safety features and they're thinking of adding some more. Uh, I think that's, you know, I think that they're getting a little bit more attention recently be because of that trough of disillusionment potential for automated vehicles. And I think that that's definitely a promising way to go that we, that humans are going to be in the driving loop. Um, and yet we're going to have these automation systems that will guard, that will act as guardrails and prevent us from potentially doing some dumb things. Well, you know, there's an interesting aspect to this in my mind, which is that no car that I've ever seen informs the user as to what the margins are for safe performance. Mm -hmm. now, every car has got probably a safe operating envelope. So what does that mean? Well, you know, at three miles an hour, <clears throat> you can turn the car as hard to the left as you want. Nothing bad's going to happen, right? At 100 miles an hour, you have to be very careful about how much you turn the car to the left <clears throat> because with only a few degrees of steering, uh, to the left, your car is going to go out of control. So this is what I mean by the performance envelope. 
One of the potential advantages of level four automation is that the car presumably would know what its performance envelope is, and it would presumably stay within that safe performance envelope more consistently than would a human driver. Because the human driver in, in your car, in my car, we have no idea what the performance envelope is, right? We can stop in the accelerator. We don't get any warning that says, hey, you idiot. You're going 85 miles an hour on a country road. What the hell are you doing? Put put my wife in your passenger seat. You'll get it. Don't worry. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> is, how, is she generally available? Or? <laughs> Different conversation. But, now. <laughs> but you know, I, actually, but lane keep assist is interesting because I find that I actually hate it because uh, when I use it, it tends to fail on curves that I wouldn't anticipate it would fail on. And yet there I am hurtling towards the guardrails at 40, 50 miles an hour. Um, I generally turn it off. The only time I turn it on yeah. really is when I'm on an interstate highway and I just don't expect anything bad to happen. And of course, then what the hell is the point? Because, you know, you, you're on a highway where you yeah. don't expect anything bad to happen. Right. Easy drive. Yeah, a few points there. Yeah, a few points there. Fred. First, yeah, I think it's really important that these, as the cars get more and more complicated, uh, we need more and more education for drivers. But you know what it's like at a dealership. You're not going there and getting a full course on what the vehicle can do and what these limitations are. And that's a real problem. No one's reading the manuals. And yet these these features are getting more capable, but more complicated. Um, but then your second point about shutting off the feature. Yeah, uh, the features depending on the manufacturer it's going to vary between manufacturer each so automatic emergency braking as i said has proven safety benefits but not all automatic emergency braking's uh features are designed the same and, and have the same efficacy right so and there are no federal standards or any other no, standards, no standards for yeah. what, it's, what it has to include or how it's supposed to perform yeah, NCAP does have some of that, but it's not a, a standard. It'll give you your crash rating equivalent, but uh, it's not the same thing as a standard. But the so you've got variance in the uh, in the efficacy, and you've got uh, variance in I guess consumer uh, adoption or appreciation for it. And as you say, if, if it becomes an annoyance to you you're liable to shut it off and then you lose all of those safety benefits. So there's a real, uh, there's a, a needle that, that needs to be threaded here that the, you have to find the right efficacy and also the right user interface so that the, the, the driver's not tempted to turn it off and lose all those safety benefits. So there's, there's a lot that goes into developing these features and there's still quite a bit of work to do. Let me get back to your book for a second. I, I really enjoyed the discussion about metrics, and I know that's something that, that's close to your heart. But I, something I noticed about that is that, well, it's a couple things, actually. First is that you don't talk explicitly about any OEDR metrics. Um, object event detection and response is the process by which the vehicle sensors detect something, and then it processes the information and then the vehicle has to respond to that information. So it's, it's fundamental to all these automatic processes that we're talking about, all the way from automatic emergency braking to self-driving. And OEDR is kind of an overall global characteristic, kind of like miles per hour, right? That subsumes everything under it into a, into a handy metric that people can understand. Um, 
So I, I wonder if you could talk about that. And the other thing that's related to that is that in the self-driving vehicles, they all seem to rely on artificial intelligence, which includes neural networks and automatic self-learning and all that sort of stuff. That's Those systems are opaque to human beings. We cannot, as human beings, understand what's inside of those automatic processes. So the only way you can really develop metrics for those, it seems to me, is to look at the statistics of stimulation and response. And frankly, the universe is not going to exist long enough for somebody to get all those meaningful statistical responses from every aspect of a self-driving system, I think. But anyway, your thoughts on that? So when we first, so back in 2020 or, or so, a uh, research group that I'm with, the Institute of Automated Mobility, uh, came up with a set of metrics um, for automated vehicle evaluation. So this is the first step in getting to evaluating how the vehicle's performing in, in different scenarios. And the way, we had some OEMs as part of our research group and talking to the, them about what they're open to providing and what they're not we because of those discussions we came up with the taxonomy of black gray and white box metrics black box metrics being uh, metrics that you can measure without having any access to the automated driving system whatsoever gray box being all right well we need a little bit of data from the ads automated driving system but not a lot and the white box being uh substantial access to the automated driving system. So what you were, and, and we, we did that purposefully because we we want to make sure that there, and you could, if you are a, say, a, a regulator of some sort or an IOO, infrastructure owner operator, that um, you can evaluate the driving performance of, of one of these vehicles without having to have access to the automated driving system. I think we, we thought that was very important. Um, so that's where, where that taxonomy came from. Um, your discussion about the OEDR uh, and it's measuring that, that performance. You're right. Right now, the AI is, is opaque. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a black box. Um, so you can't get you can't understand or see what's happening on the inside. You can get the, the input output and you can measure those things. So we could develop more white box metrics. We have a few in, in our um, in our metrics. And I should mention that the VNV task force is working on uh, SAEJ 3237. Uh, hopefully that will be published in the early in the new year. So under the SE's on-road automated driving committee that has these metrics, black, gray, and white, uh, we have some white box metrics, but we didn't get extensively into them because of that sensitivity from the OEMs. We didn't want to, to scare them off and, and not want to work with us. So we, we were very judicious in, in having a few white box metrics that require for, that you, for which you require um, ADS data. And but we could certainly look at different subsystems. You could get, you could have white box metrics that measure the perception. You could have white box metrics that measure the path planning. Um, both of those subsystems, you could do it and you could get into them. You could say, you could look at your localization. You could look at your classification. You could look at your, your tracking and getting into all of those details. You, you can probe those aspects of the automated driving system. Um, if you have, if you have basically unfettered access to it, but we have stayed away from them for now. Um, maybe the next revision of, of J3237 will include some more of those. Um, and, and maybe the industry will decide that's important and we need to do that. We need to not just look at 
the vehicle's performance from the system, from the vehicle itself. Did it go through a red light? Is it speeding? Uh, did it avoid that object? Easy to see from a, you don't even need to be on the vehicle. You could get, you could have an infrastructure camera that could capture all of that. But maybe we'll decide, no, we need to now dig deep into the ADS and, and see why it was doing what we saw at the at the system or vehicle level. Since we're on a segment, since we're on perception real quick, I was just wondering, I had kind of a question generally, but, you know, perception, you have basically four categories of things that the vehicle's doing there. You know, you're detecting the object, you're, you're tracking the object, if it moves, you're getting kind of a depth estimation for it. But then you also have this area called segmentation where you know it's basically the vehicle or the computer is classifying objects into appropriate categories and just looking at those four to me and also looking at you know how that is generally where even in humans we tend to screw up the most is then how we categorize things in the world and 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 what we believe their attributes are before we act is that the most challenging part of the perception i mean it's there are a few things that are challenging but that's that is very true i mean if you look at the uber incident from several years ago which is actually quite close to my house in in tempe arizona um the vehicle identified misidentified her several times she it was a challenging situation because this is a pedestrian crossing the road perpendicular to the vehicle uh, and she was walking a bike and so it misclassified her as a pedestrian as a cyclist i think for some reason i think at one point maybe even a plastic bag but it it switched back and forth several times uh from what is this object and which is as you as you say michael very important to know because you're going to have very different characteristics both from a uh, what's what speed are you likely to be moving at but also your ability to to change direction quickly a pedestrian can change direction a lot faster than a car can and and more uh, you know, you could you could go off much more obliquely um so yeah it's it's a huge challenge um that i i we don't know, you know, I I don't work for Waymo, so I don't know how much better they are than Uber was back in 2018. So it's, you know, I it probably is one of the biggest challenges they face, but because we don't get data from them, we can't say, okay, they are this good at it now. So maybe to Fred's point, we need some more of those white box metrics to, so that we have, we understand that. I'm trying to, with the metrics we're doing in J3237, kind of a backdoor way. If you, if, if you don't perceive things correctly, eventually you're not going to drive appropriately. So if you don't perceive that pedestrian or you think that pedestrian is a car, you're going to act differently. So we're trying to understand from that perspective, but to really get an understanding of how the vehicle is performing top to bottom. Yeah. You need a lot more of those perception path planning metrics. So when you guys are in these SAE meetings, do you actually get feedback from the OEMs saying, "Hey, we do want regulations here. We do want guidelines." I've or never it- heard them say that. <laughs> be, be, yeah. Be, yeah. Are they we, yeah, we don't get into the politics necessarily or the regulatory scheme, but they I mean there are some very good uh people working from those companies working on the standards with, with Fred and I. And, uh, you know, they, they very involved, very engaged. 
and some of them are excellent collaborators. So um, yeah, it, it, it's not all the companies are are doing that. Um, I haven't seen a Tesla representative in any of these standards committees, for example. Um, and I wish they would engage more. I think that they they do. I don't know if you saw t- today's news about the the recall of oh, yeah. Meetings, <laughs> yeah right? Insert insert my shocked face there where you say they haven't been at those meetings. Yeah. <laughs> I wish they would. Um, I think it's it's be better for them, it'd be better for the industry, it'd be better for the public. Um, but no, Anthony, yeah, we don't talk about, at least not on the record, talk about uh, the regulatory schemes. Well, I didn't think it was more regulatory schemes, more like if if I'm the engineer, I want to know, okay, well, what are the, the guidelines I have to go for? Basically, what you're saying is like, what are the standards I have to hit? Because if not, it's just the the Wild West. And one of my concerns I, from, yeah, go ahead. As I said, there are no standards you have to hit, right? That's the thing. Right. They, don't, they don't need to. And so, you know, until they're forced to, uh, they're not going to, uh, uh, you know, I think that's, that's the, the crux of it. Well, that's one of the problems when governments defer to industry consensus standards and industry documents that you've got to remember that the human beings involved in these meetings, uh, myself included, Jeffrey included, and a lot of other people really do their best to inject their engineering judgment into what these standards uh, are going to cover. But it's also important to note that almost all of these people are paid by their industry sponsors. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, most of them work directly for companies. And even though they are supposed to represent themselves as individuals and not their companies in these meetings, the fact is that it's hard for people to ignore the person who is paying their you know, they're giving them a paycheck every couple of weeks. Yeah, and, uh, you know. that's interesting because at the the IEEE is different than SAE. So SAE, they have these these statements they read before every meeting. They say, yeah, you're as Fred said, you're representing yourself, not any other organization. But then some people in their name, they put, say, Jeffrey Wishart, Arizona Commissioner, ACA, right? So then it's very clear, like, are you representing yourself? Or I've just identified myself with this organization. Um, very different from IEEE, where you are explicitly in those standards meetings, you're explicitly representing your organization. Your organization has to pay to to be a part of that. SAE, as Fred said, we are all individuals. But yeah, it's you you don't find very very frequently someone saying something that their organization wouldn't like. I don't think. I I, I don't think that's gonna. I, I don't know that. I guess for sure, but uh, they're you know I, I can't imagine that they are saying things that go against what their what their company thinks. No, I think the other extreme is the, the organization called the AVSC, or what is, uh, stands for Automated Advanced Vehicle, Vehicle Consortium, consortium yeah. which you refer to in your book as an SAE-based consortium. But I always think of them as kind of the uh, you know resistance underground from people who <laughs> want to really defy the government because they put out these documents as though they're quasi-official documents, yet there's no government. Uh, organizations involved in it. There are no consumer-oriented organizations involved in it. And and to say that they're SAE-based somehow gives them an imprimatur, which I don't think they deserve. I think they're, you know, in a sense, kind of dangerous because they're putting a, a pretty face on something that people don't really understand what's underneath the, you know, the, the tent here. 
Yeah, interesting. I I guess I have a little bit. I have a better view of them than you do, Fred. Uh, I the SAE has a has a several different parts to its organization. So it it's run by one one division of SAE. Um, they're called their ITC, which I can't remember what that stands for. Um, Technologies Consortium. I, I can't remember what the I is, but regardless, uh, you know, the, yeah. See, so the process is opaque. You can, not just anybody can can join it. Um, so it's co- paid companies that are doing it, and, and they are very careful in their in their calls. I understand, but you know, they're putting them out as best practices, and I think that's useful. It's kind of like when you guys did your Bill of Rights. I think putting it out to the community um, for a standards body like SAE, uh, you know, they kind of toss over themselves or over the fence to themselves too to adopt to take on and make into a standard i think is is quite useful so that's one of the things that happened with the metrics work j3237 uh the iem we had our research and and we put that out in, into the public domain avsc put it out theirs out and what started out as an information report and sae has three different levels to their documents information report recommended practice and then standard in uh increasing amount of industry consensus so what started as an information report got upgraded to a recommended practice because the IAM's work and the AVSC's work was kind of philosophically aligned. So I, I see what the AVSC puts out as useful and helpful to the, the, to the industry. Um, you know, yes, it's not a standard, it's not a regulation, but I think it's they put out useful work in my, in my view. Oh, thank you for that. So, uh, in your opinion, now, uh, how soon before we have fully autonomous vehicles? Oh, my God. That's, that's a million <laughs> dollar, $20 billion question, right? It's a trick um, question because it happened two years ago, according to Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, I, so I live in Arizona, and I see uh, Waymos with no vehicles, or no driver. Um, have you gotten road. into them? Yes, I have. Oh, I, well, what's the experience? Experience is quite good. I haven't had any issues, although my girlfriend got into one and it went past the road that was would have turned to our house and and took a, a circuitous route for some reason. I'm not sure why. Um, but other than that, it's it's been pretty seamless. Um, Arizona, as you might know, has big wide streets uh, and the infrastructure is quite good. It's, it's block system. It's pretty simple. Um, I know your favorite person, Kyle, used to say that uh, their cruise vehicles in San Francisco would learn 48 times per mile in San Francisco than what they learned in Phoenix. So kind of, you come to Phoenix, it's kind of with the training wheels. It's much easier. We do have traffic, but it's not crazy traffic, and we don't have as many pedestrians or cyclists, these sorts of things, um, as San Francisco, at least in a, such a concentrated way. So... It was actually quite. It was the experience was quite good in the Waymo vehicle. I I have my thoughts on on uh, bl- deployment without the safety standards, but from my experience, it was it was quite good. Do you have a concern that the Waymo was trying to uh, take your girlfriend away from you? Oh, you don't want to go to Jeffrey's house. Come on, let's go get a drink. <laughs> bring her back to bring her back to the depot. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, Anthony. Now now I'm going to have nightmares. <laughs> Sorry. But I guess the, you know, the, so I, I guess your question, Anthony, but when are we going to see them? We, we, we do see them uh, in small numbers. I, I think that we've, I don't think that we're going to be, I mean, Cruz, uh, their plan was 10 times growth every year until 
until things went awry. Uh, I, I think that we're going to see, I think Waymo is much, is, is pretty cautious in, 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 at least in terms of scaling or more cautious. Uh, so I think that we're going to see them grow their footprint. We may get a couple of other companies, uh, robo taxi companies starting. I mean, I think Motional is, um, I think going to probably start to deploy uh, at, at some point, I, you know, I, I don't have any inside information, but I think we'll see some more robo taxi services. I think we'll see some more of the tracking side of things. Or some people think that that's a better use case, uh, or because, or at least a simpler use case, because you're on public, you're on highways, you're at highway speeds, but you don't have the pedestrians and, and cyclists, and, and it's not as complicated. It's called the operational design domain. So that may be uh, a better use case. And then you've got your your shuttles that are moving at low speed on a university campus or a business campus or an airport. Um, so because they're low speed, the, the stakes are lower. Um, there are some companies that are doing that and maybe we'll get there. Or then we've got the the neuros, the the grocery delivery uh, co- companies that are they could be riding on the sidewalk at very sl- slow speeds. So I think depending on the use case, um, we'll see them kind of you know, they'll, they'll come in in varying uh, degrees and at varying speeds. And I should mention drones. We'll see drones. We'll we'll see automated drones at some point too. Um, so, you know, there are lots of different use cases out there and the, the timelines, uh, are going to be different for each of them, I think. Great. Good to know. Um, Hey, uh, I don't know if you guys have any other questions. If not, I'm going to jump to some of our listener mail. Um, so we only got a couple of minutes left. Anyone? Okay. I, you All know, right. I, I, I think that's pretty good. Okay. You know, Jeff, thanks so much. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, I, I feel like we could have gone a lot longer. Maybe we'll have to have you back soon to talk yeah, about I'm happy to. I, I, I wanted to talk about the, the Smart Drive program and some of the things they're doing in Arizona, like preventing emergency vehicles from hitting at intersections and all that oh, stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I'd love to talk about that. We can dive into that another time. <laughs> yes, you definitely have to come back for a part two. Uh, so sounds good. Feel free to stick around for the next couple of minutes. Um, but hey, listeners, we want to thank Dr. Jeffrey Wishart. Uh, with the Arizona Commerce Authority and the Science Foundation of Arizona, and he's a professor at Arizona State University. Uh, the book is titled Fundamentals of Connected and Automated Vehicles. It's available from SAE International. So uh, we've got a, a couple good pieces of listener feedback this week. Uh, the number one, and I think, Michael, you really have to address this, is how long have you been funded by Big Auto? <laughs> that was that was a very interesting question that came in response from a flood of people who were not very happy with our comments about the Cybertruck being fairly unsafe. Um, but we are actually, we've never been funded by Big Auto and we never will be. That's really one of our founding principles is independence from any large corporate um, donors that are going to direct what we do. That's what allows us to say anything we want and what allows Anthony to make fun of Kyle on a weekly basis. <laughs> I, I've moved on from Kyle. Okay, But we would accept sponsorship from Piggly Wiggly, wouldn't oh we? Oh my God. We, we will, we will accept, you know, we will accept donations from anyone that's not, you know, a, t- a tier one manufacturer or, you know, we 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 don't want anyone who uh, we don't want anyone basically controlling our operations. We we we're you know like most Ralph Nader founded groups. We are we are hedged towards independence from all the money that's flying around the world these days. So we've made poor life choices. 
All right. Uh, so Robert writes in, he says, with the Cybertruck's almost unbreakable glass, how are emergency responders going to be able to quickly extricate the vehicle's occupants if they are unresponsive and or the doors are jammed in an accident? That's an excellent that's question. That's a great question. That's a that's one that I don't know if there's really a good answer to yet because we haven't seen any incidents where emergency responders are having to deal with that sort of thing. I believe uh and from what i've been able to gather you know very you know on the web and from sources that aren't exactly uh direct law enforcement or or life-saving sources is that the jaws of life can deal with those windows and can deal with the stainless steel but it will probably be a little more difficult it may be slower for extractions um, but it also points to the need for Tesla to develop better ways for uh, passengers and drivers to exit post crash. I mean, we know that some of their emergency releases on their on their automatic doors are hidden and in places that make it difficult for someone who hasn't read their owner's manual, which no one does, to be able to extricate themselves from the vehicle in the event of a crash. We know people have gotten trapped in the event of fires and in, in, in those situations. And it's something that I think, you know, especially when you're designing a, a battle tank of a vehicle that you need to really focus on is making sure that that post-crash safety remains on your radar. I'd like to point out that I've read my owner manual and I've also been picked last in gym class a number of times. Uh, last question uh, from Frank, another Tesla related, related question. Uh, hello, I've observed that the current model of Tesla's Y, Tesla, Tesla Y's rear tail lights are exceptionally bright and that Anthony can't speak. Even while driving, the lights are so bright that they look like two red laser beams aimed at the driver behind them. Again, these are not stopping lights, but the regular driving night lights. Is this something you can investigate? Is there a standard I mean, around lumens? It, I don't know. There are, that's an interesting one. I did that. I've never really heard anyone talking about. I mean, we get a lot of feedback, and then there's even a number of groups out there that are strongly suggesting that, that LED lights and some other things on vehicles today are excessively bright. We're hoping that some of the um, adaptive headlight rules that are coming down from NHTSA and just the, the the new designs of those are gonna mitigate some of that and ensure that headlights are properly aimed. That's also another huge problem is that headlights move around on vehicles all the time due to vibration use, collisions, and aren't aligned so that they can properly illuminate the road ahead of you and not blind other drivers. So it's, something that is we hope gets better with time but in the case of a rear you know dry operating light that's on all the time i've never heard of that complaint so i would encourage you know if anyone has a similar complaint uh don't just let us know let nitsa know because that's what they need to look into there are there are standards for the illumination of, of rear tail lights all right, and with that, again, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Wishart. The book is called Fundamentals of Connected and Automated Vehicles. Get it now. It's a great Christmas gift. Um, I know, it's, a, it's a great book. Uh, and so thanks, everybody. Till uh, next week. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.